0: Pedophile priest, predator, pervert, monster, sex fiend. These are all words we hear to describe people who have offended sexually. And it makes a lot of sense. Sexual abuse brings about a visceral reaction in people because it goes against our strongly held belief that normal people can't and don't behave in this way. The truth of the matter is that reducing someone to a label like the ones we've mentioned stops us from truly understanding why they offended in the first place. People sexually offend for various reasons, and if we don't understand these reasons, we can never create effective policy responses. It is often our disgust and horror about sexual offending that clouds our ability to think in ways that are not driven by emotion.
1: People who sexually offend are a diverse group of complex people like all of us. If we approach them as simply the sum of their offending behavior, we won't really learn much. As such, we make it a point to use person-first language. This means that we recognize individuals as people first, not as their offense first. Just as many people who live with mental illness do not want to be referred to as bipolar or schizophrenic. Or a person who has experienced sexual violence doesn't want to be referred to as a victim. Or a person who has an addiction doesn't want to be called an addict. The same is true for a person who has sexually offended. Person-first language is never meant to diminish, excuse, or justify the seriousness of a sexual offense. But it helps people think more clearly and with less emotion about why people
0: sexually offend in the first place. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. In this episode, we explain some of the reasons why people sexually offend, as understanding why sexual abuse happens and developing appropriate policy responses helps to eliminate fear. More specifically, we will talk about what we know about how and why people engage in child sexual abuse and various forms of rape. This conversation may be difficult to listen to. It might be confronting for some. Nevertheless, we hope you will join us as we take you Beyond Fear. This episode of Beyond Fear might be difficult to listen to. It can be confronting to learn about the reasons why people sexually offend, And it can be confusing to hear us talk about it in a calm and non-judgmental way. I really think it's important to remind our listeners at the outset there are many different forms of sexual misconduct, from catcalling and verbal harassment to violent assault and everything in between. In this episode, we are specifically talking about child sexual abuse and rape, though equal attention should be given to other forms of sexual harm. We hope that you stay with us as we unpack this topic, but we recognize that some of you might not be able to. It's okay to turn this off, walk away, or listen in short chunks.
1: When I first pursued a criminal justice education, I was drawn to studying why people commit crime. And what I learned really fascinated me. I learned that there were many different theories that could help explain why people break societal norms, rules, and laws and that there has never been one reason that can explain all crime. I learned that having frameworks that help us understand criminal behavior facilitates our ability to effectively reduce it. Unfortunately, much of the criminal justice policy agenda at the state and federal level has been created based on emotional reactions rather than on sound policy and evidence. This is especially true for sex crimes policy. On an academic level, I knew this to be true for all criminal behavior, but on a personal level, I didn't want to believe it to be true for sex crimes. I wanted to hold on to the belief that people like the man who raped me were nothing more than monsters who deserve to rot in a worse hell than the one that I was left in. There was this little nagging question that lingered in my mind that I couldn't shake. It was a question that had been on my mind since the night I was raped. During the rape, I remember thinking, what happened to this man to make him behave like this? And despite wanting to push it away and continue my life thinking that he was just a monster, I just couldn't do that.
0: You know, I had a similar experience when I found out more information about the man who attacked me. He was a husband with an infant child. He had a good job. His boss seemed to really like him. And the fact that he was a regular guy really jarred me but it's also one of the reasons that I decided to study criminology. I really wanted to understand the why. So in our last episode, we talked to Dr. Karen Terry, who was the principal investigator on two national studies related to sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. One of the questions we asked her was if she could comment on the term pedophile priest. This was a term spread across the media in accounts of priests who had abused children, but it was a fallacy from the get-go. It did sell a lot of newspapers, but it was really an inaccurate portrayal of the problem. There have been major studies on child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church and across the general population over time. And we have learned that the vast majority of people who sexually abuse children do not have a sexual attraction to children. Pedophilia is one of several paraphilic disorders listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM. So we're going to talk briefly about paraphilias. Paraphilias are recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors that are typically distressing or disabling and that involve inanimate objects, children, or non-consenting adults or the suffering and humiliation of oneself or partner with the potential to cause harm. Some people believe that any kind of atypical sexual interest is a disorder or paraphilia, but let's just say for the record right now that there are all kinds of sexual interests that fall outside the definition of, quote, normal sexual interest. And if you're thinking, hey, that's me, it doesn't mean you have a paraphilia.
1: Remember from episode three that Pedophilia is a psychiatric diagnosis, and as such implies that a pedophile is someone who has a mental illness rather than a sexual orientation or attraction. There is significant disagreement around the use of this terminology. We find that it is more appropriate to use the term minor-attracted person, which also aligns with our commitment to use person-first language. I think it's important for people to know that paraphilias exist, that they often bring about a lot of shame for people. And that most importantly, the vast majority of people who sexually abuse children do not have a sexual attraction to children and defend for other reasons. The media really benefits from conflating pedophilia with child sexual abuse, but they are simply not the same thing. Not by a long shot. I'll say that again. The vast majority of people who sexually abuse children do not have a sexual attraction to children.
0: I also feel that it's worth repeating here that the media often uses the terms child molester and pedophile interchangeably, and these are very different categories. Most people that have a sexual attraction to minors never touch a child in a sexual manner. So now that we've busted one major myth about child sexual abuse, we're going to attempt to bust a few more. Have you ever watched that show Mythbusters, Alyssa? I totally have. I feel like we could probably stop calling ourselves criminologists or survivor scholars. We should just call ourselves Mythbusters. I'm game. (laughs) Probably get sued for that. (laughs) So
1: why then does child sexual abuse occur? Well, as we said at the beginning of this episode, there is no one reason why someone sexually offends. In fact, there is usually a combination of factors that lead to sexual abuse. Sometimes sexual abuse does include deviant sexual arousal, but oftentimes it is far more complex than that. Researchers believe that some factors related to sexually abusing children include, but are not limited to, the inability to cope with life stressors like the loss of employment or marital problems, loneliness and isolation, poor attachments to other people, social skills and relationship
0: deficits, and cognitive distortions. To talk about all this would really take an entire podcast series, let alone one episode, but there are a few things we really want to focus on, including previous abuse, cognitive distortions, the offense cycle, grooming behavior, and opportunity. A really common misconception about people who sexually abuse minors is that they themselves have been sexually abused. So this will take some unpacking, but stick with us. It is true that people who commit sex crimes of all kinds have higher rates of childhood adversity and maltreatment, but just because someone experiences child abuse does not mean that they will grow up to abuse children. We have to talk about adverse childhood experiences studies that took place in the 1990s. Very briefly, in the 1980s, Dr. Vincent Felitti ran an obesity clinic in San Diego, California, and was really frustrated that despite the successes in the program, many of his patients had dropped out and he wanted to understand why. As he reviewed their files, he found that many of these individuals had experienced one or more forms of childhood adversity, including psychological, physical, and sexual abuse, and also neglect and maltreatment. He thought that perhaps obesity was actually a protective mechanism or a consequence of childhood adversity. We feel it's important to note here that ACEs are very serious types of adversity. We're not talking about single instance of maybe having a negative experience with another kid in a classroom. That doesn't take away from those experiences that can also be traumatic, but As you'll see when I read off the questionnaire, these are very, very serious types of trauma in childhood. Basically, the ACE questionnaire is a scoring system that attributes one point to each category of these adverse childhood experiences. There are 10 questions that each cover a different domain of trauma and refer to experiences that occur before the age of 18 the higher year score indicates increased exposure to trauma, which has been associated with a greater risk of negative consequences, which we talked about earlier in the episode. It's important to also note that, of course, these are not the only negative experiences, and actually researchers are looking into other types of experiences that could be added to the questionnaire. Question one. Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt? Did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Did an adult or or person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touched their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you? Did you often or very often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? Did you often or very often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you? Or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? Were your parents ever separated or divorced? Was your mother or stepmother often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes, often or very often, kicked, beaten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit at least a few times, or threatened with a gun or knife? Did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic, or who used street drugs? Was a household member depressed or mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? Did a household member go to prison? We will include a link to the ACEs questionnaire, so uh, you can take a look at that on our website and our blog post. So if we fast forward a bit, in partnership with Kaiser Permanente and the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Felitti and his colleagues undertook a large-scale study of 17,000 people to better understand the link between childhood adversity and health concerns in adulthood. And what they found astounded them.
1: Not only was childhood abuse and neglect linked to obesity, it was linked to higher rates of heart attack and stroke, higher rates of cancer and chronic illness, increased risk of mental illness, including depression, increased substance misuse and abuse, higher rates of suicide, the list goes on the study found that over 40% of participants had two or more adverse childhood experiences. And let's get real. Most of us have experienced at least one. None of us get out of this life unscathed, right? And 12.5% of participants had four or more of these experiences. These negative physical and mental health outcomes increase as one's ACE score increases. Now, it is important to state that a high ACE score does not mean that any of these negative health outcomes are
0: inevitably going to happen. So you might be wondering at this point what this has to do with sexual offending. Researchers then began to wonder whether childhood adversity was linked to other negative outcomes besides physical and mental health issues in adulthood. They began studying adverse childhood experiences among people convicted and incarcerated for all sorts of crimes. To date, multiple studies have found that incarcerated people have higher rates of sexual and physical abuse when compared to the general population. And it's also worth noting that in studies of incarcerated people, those who report childhood abuse were more likely to be serving time for homicide, sexual offenses, and other violent crimes. A study by Dr. Jill Levinson and her colleagues compared men who have sexually offended with men in the general population and found that men who have sexually offended have higher odds of having experienced child sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, and emotional abuse than men who haven't. Whereas 12.5% of people in the general ACEs study had experienced four or more adverse childhood experiences, almost half of the men in the study who had sexually offended reported four or more adverse child experiences these findings have been replicated in other studies on individuals who have sexually offended.
1: And, of course, it goes without saying, though we will say it anyway, understanding this link does not excuse or justify sexual offending, but it helps us to understand why some people sexually offend. Not everyone who sexually offends has been sexually abused, and not all people who are sexually abused will go on to sexually offend.
0: But a nuanced understanding of the link between the two important. This next phenomenon can be difficult to hear about but it's also an important aspect of sexual offending to understand. This is the presence of cognitive distortions among those who sexually abuse children. Here it's really important that we first define cognitive distortions and explain how they work. So cognitive distortions are irrational inflated thoughts that distort our perception of reality they can really play a significant role in perpetuating our psychological states, which include anxiety and depression. These thought patterns are often automatic and can be very difficult to identify if we are not aware of them. Some common examples of cognitive distortions include thoughts like, if I fail at something, I'm a loser, I can never do anything right, I was too busy to complete a task on my to-do list, so my whole day is ruined, that's definitely me. In order to justify or excuse their behavior, those who sexually offend often
1: use mental gymnastics or cognitive distortions to get there. This is done through minimizing or denying the damage caused to victims, minimizing violence used in their offense, denying responsibility for the offense, and denying planning of the offense. Common cognitive distortions among individuals that sexually abuse children include beliefs that the abusive behavior is helping the child to learn, that the child enjoys it, that the behavior is not harmful, and the belief
0: that the assault is a product of mutual interest. Right. These cognitive distortions can also play a role in the offending cycle as well. So this offense cycle is much more than a series of decisions. It involves many determinants that include the interactions of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And as difficult as this may be to accept, people typically don't make a straightforward decision to offend. Instead, there's a series of what are called seemingly irrelevant decisions that can create a pro-offending environment. So there are several steps in this offense cycle. And typically, at the beginning of the cycle, the person has negative thoughts like, I am no good or nobody likes me. And these often lead to negative feelings like anger, frustration, loneliness, or inadequacy. These
1: seemingly irrelevant decisions, we all make them. Take me and Oreos. And no, I am not likening my eating Oreos to child sexual abuse. But I tell you this as a, an example or a way to understand how we all use cognitive distortions. So if I go to the grocery store and I happen to pass the aisle where the Oreos are, that's kind of a seemingly unimportant decision. And then I turn down the aisle just to see if there are any sales going on. Another seemingly unimportant decision. And then I see the Oreos and I grab them and I throw them in the cart and I think I'm just going to take them home. I'm going to eat one Oreo. And I go home and by the next day I have eaten the entire package of family sized Oreos. I cannot confirm nor deny whether or not this has happened. <laughs> but this is a, it, like this all began with a seemingly irrelevant decision that led to me eating this entire pack of Oreos. The combination of these thoughts and feelings, sometimes negative, lead people to make seemingly irrelevant decisions that lead them to withdraw from others. Oftentimes, when we're thinking about child sexual abuse, the combination of negative thoughts and feelings and beliefs lead people to make seemingly irrelevant decisions that lead them to withdraw from others, which compounds their loneliness and frustration. As they withdraw from others, there's a lack of communication with others, which leaves unresolved negative thoughts and feelings and can intensify
0: intimacy deficits. Oftentimes, the abusive act causes the person to feel anxiety and fear. This often leads to the end of the cycle. However, many people do not or are unable to address the initial negative thoughts and feelings that led to the abuse, and so the cycle begins again.
1: One way that people who sexually abuse children are able to do so is by gaining the trust of the child and their family, which doesn't just happen overnight. We call this grooming behavior. Grooming has come up a couple of times, and many of you may have heard this term before. It's important to define it here. Grooming is a premeditated behavior used to manipulate a potential victim into compliance. Grooming behaviors vary. Some people who abuse children are unaware of their grooming patterns. Others may deny them. And still others develop elaborate schemes to encourage children to participate in sexual acts. One of the most commonly used methods of gaining access to potential victims is the use of verbal and emotional manipulation. This can happen by trying to talk the child into sex, acting disappointed if the child refuses, doing favors in exchange for sexual activity, and threatening to harm family or friends if the child does not comply. The essential aspect of this approach is that the offender pushes and persuades the child till their back is against a wall.
0: And still another tactic involves camouflaging sexual advances in the context of made-up-game scenarios. So abusers may start by tickling or wrestling the victim and then move into more sexual behavior. Just like the other tactics, the victim is really unaware of the real purpose of these actions. So grooming is a way to make opportunities for abuse to occur. So if you think back to our previous episode, that the vast majority of abusive situations were the result of opportunity. This is true for child sexual abuse, and it's also true for instances of rape.
1: This explanation is highlighted by both of our experiences. The perpetrators in both of our cases created on the opportunity to offend. For example, in my experience, the man who raped me created the opportunity to offend by first focusing in on the fact that I was the vulnerable person at that party, right? While everybody else was partying, I was sitting on a couch watching the party around me. And that was something that he picked up on and used that as an opportunity to come talk to me. And so even though we're talking about a rape here, this was a grooming technique, kind of like we talked about in child sexual abuse. Um, It was a grooming technique used to groom me to make me feel more comfortable with him. And then he asked me to go for a walk with him on the beach in the dark at night where no one else was around. So even though my gut told me that I shouldn't go with him, he created enough trust, enough of the opportunity for me to go with him to a place where no one would see us. And so the whole experience was an opportunity that he created by his actions
0: from the get go. My experience is... Similar in that the perpetrator did create opportunities or take advantage of certain opportunities to offend, but I think have less characteristics of grooming behavior than Alyssa's. But this was a person who went out that night by himself. He brought a knife with him. He reportedly was walking up and down the street near my dorms and had actually followed some girl's before he broke into my dorm, and the reason they were able to get away from him is they went into a gas station till he eventually stopped following them. Then, of course, he broke into the dorm through a basement window and hid in the shower stall in the bathroom with a knife. So he very much acted on the opportunities that were available to him. The dorm was not hard to get into. There was a dorm full of young women close by, so he had plenty of opportunity to commit the offense that he did.
1: Yeah. So I think it's important to point out that when experiences like this happen, when somebody makes the decision to commit rape or child sexual abuse, sometimes opportunities present themselves. And sometimes the people who cause this kind of harm create the opportunities themselves. Right. And you can see elements of both of those things Mm -hmm. when the two of us
0: talk about our experiences of rape. Absolutely. Going back into the 1970s, feminist scholar Susan Brownmiller wrote a book that analyzed rape in a cultural, historical, and political context. And she asserted that sexual crime is an example of men's oppression of women. So she believed that sexual assault was a symptom of patriarchal society that emphasizes male supremacy. So rape, according to this explanation, is a cultural problem, not an individual one. We believe that a much more nuanced understanding of the causes of rape are
1: necessary. In no way do we doubt that the socialization of young boys relates to the belief that they can take what they want by any means necessary. We see this in slogans like, just do it. But that doesn't negate that our boys are not going to behave this way if opportunities do not present themselves. And just so we're clear, men are not just the problem. Men are part of the solution. Rape is a human rights problem, and the solution involves everyone. This explanation regarding opportunity is highlighted in both of our personal experiences. The perpetrators in both of our cases created and acted on the opportunity to offend.
0: Right. And here I think it's important to remember that there are different kinds of rape, ranging from date rape and acquaintance rape to premeditated rapes by strangers. And the reasons why these kinds of rape occur are different. So just like people who sexually abuse children, those who commit rape are complex people who offend for a variety of reasons. But here is what we do know about the common characteristics found among men who commit rape. Many men who commit rape exhibit negative views of women and often endorse rape myths. There are many rape myths out there that are pervasive in our society, but here are just a few. It's not rape if it happens after drinking or taking drugs. Victims provoke rape when they dress provocatively. If she had sex with me before, she has consented to have sex with me again, or she owes me. It's not rape if the people involved knew each other. Men who rape are
1: also more likely to condone violence and identify with hypermasculine identity, similar to those who sexually abuse children. Men who commit rape often experience a sense of worthlessness or isolation, or feel socially inadequate have difficult or weakened social and peer relationships, and the inability to manage their aggression in healthy ways. Finally, many men who commit rape have difficulty recognizing both verbal and nonverbal cues from women about unwanted sexual behavior. Generally speaking, despite the fact that rape is a sex crime, it's not always about sex. Indeed, all rapes have some element of power and control. Dr. A. Nicholas Groth wrote in 1983 that rape is the sexual abuse of power and the sexual expressions of needs, motives, and issues that are predominantly non-sexual. He went further to say that rape is the sexual expression of aggression rather than the aggressive expression
0: of sexuality. And this isn't to say that there aren't instances when the motivation for rape is sexual, So typically, we see this in men who rape because they believe they cannot achieve or they have failed to achieve normal relationships with women, and they come to believe that violence is the only way to be sexually gratified. Similarly, there are a very small group of men who rape because they are sadists. So sadism is a paraphilia. Remember earlier when we talked about paraphilias as recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors that are distressing or disabling and involve inanimate objects, children, or non consenting adults, or suffering or humiliation of oneself or their partner with the potential to cause harm. So, people who meet the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM criteria for sadism, who do sexually offend, typically experience sexual gratification via the pain and fear they inflict, not from the sexual aspect of the offense. They also tend to be predatory in their behavior and re-offend at a significantly higher rate than most other people who commit sexual offenses. They are also more likely to offend against strangers, are more likely to use violence, and rarely have the capacity to show empathy.
1: But most rapes are more about power and control or opportunity, and not specifically about sex. Some of the evidence for this lies in how rapes are perpetrated and the factors present in specific accounts of rape. For example, many rape survivors disclose that the perpetrator used degrading language during the assault or demanded that the survivor perform humiliating sex acts, meant specifically to control and further degrade vulnerable women. Additionally, studies show that men who rape are more likely to be aroused by consensual sexual activity than non-consensual activity. Furthermore, there is a high incidence of erectile dysfunction during the perpetration of rape. We also see evidence of this when we examine rape in the military and within correctional facilities. Again, rape is used as a tool to control and dominate the victim, having very little or nothing, To do with sexual arousal.
0: And perhaps the most egregious way in which rape is used is when it is used as a tool of warfare. And to that end, we will explore the use of rape during times of war in our next episode with Dr. Nicole Fox. We know that conversations like this can be very difficult to hear and to participate in. If you stuck with us this far, thank you for hanging in there with us. The only way to make positive changes is to lean into the discomfort of these conversations. We are so glad you are tuning in and we encourage you to reach out to us via our website or on our various social media pages. Thank you for journeying with us beyond fear. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes podcast. Please join us next time and hear our interview with Dr. Nicole Fox, a professor at California State University Sacramento in the Division of Criminal Justice. She joins us to talk about how rape is used during wartime as a tool of genocide. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources and readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.